And I think that the modelling community, if we want to have the public trust in us, have absolutely got to be totally honest about the amount of uncertainty in our models because otherwise we will lose public trust. Took a moment then to consider science And how it's got me figured out Hi, you're listening to Sensationalist Science, a podcast about science, the media, and the truth behind those astonishing headlines you've read. I'm your host, GitMK, aka The Health Nerd, and this week we'll be talking about a topic that has really been on everyone's minds recently, COVID-19 modelling. Whether you've seen 100 or 100,000 deaths predicted over the next six months, this is the podcast episode for you. The one thing that all of the predictive models for COVID have had in common is that they were wrong. But what made them wrong? How wrong were they? And what should you watch out for when you see a headline about the future of coronavirus in the world? This week, I've got a cracker interview with Professor Sally Cripps, a brilliant statistician, and we'll take you through the ins and outs of COVID-19 modelling and what it all means to you, what you should watch out for, and what you should keep in mind when reading those damn headlines. Enjoy! Welcome to Sensationalist Science. Today we have Professor Sally Cripps, the director of the ARC Center in Data Analytics for Resources and Environments, called DARE, and a professor of statistics, School of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of Sydney, Australia. Welcome to the podcast, Sally. Oh, uh, happy to be here. Thanks, Gideon. Um, So today we're talking models, in particular these predictive models that everyone has seen in the news. And the first thing I really wanted to ask was how are these numbers arrived at and what could possibly be wrong with them? Well, um, there are many models. Um, do you want me to talk about one in particular or models in general? Um, an example might be good. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, so, look, I'll start with the example of the IHME model because that's the first model we looked at when we started evaluating models for COVID-19, um, which was now back in late March. Um, the model that we focused on uh, was IHME because um, – They were repeatedly in the CNN news. They were talked about in Washington by the US president. And it was the model that people were actually basing large resourcing decisions about how to cope with COVID-19. And so uh, it was making um, predictions, pretty um, wild predictions. The predictions changed a lot, which is actually to be expected. You know, at the beginning of a pandemic, nobody really knows what's going on. However, their first set of predictions, they were predicting very large numbers. And interestingly, just very little uncertainty around those incredibly large numbers. So they were sort of saying that we were going to be seeing, you know, 50 million deaths or whatever it was over the life of the thing with with a very small uh, uncertainty interval around that. And that led to a lot of um, decisions around, you know, making sure that there was enough hospital beds um, and, and it led to some pretty catastrophic decisions, actually, which I can talk about later. But but in general, uh, that's how we began with the IHME model. Um, and like all models then, uh, you know, it, they will all get it wrong because they are just models. Models are simplifications of the world. Um, and um, particularly at the beginning of a pandemic when there is not a lot of data, uh, it's um, 
you know, the all the assumptions are the thing that drives the models. And so the model is as good as the assumptions actually are met in what's actually happening in the in the real world. So uh, many assumptions such as homogeneous populations, that was one assumption in the IHME model, uh, independence of um, events so that um, the fact that there was a outbreak in a nursing home, you know, led to, you know, an increased number of outbreaks in that particular nursing home because of the dependency that was sort of ignored in that model. And so there were there were various things that were wrong with the model, as there are with any model. And I think that that's actually okay. I don't, as long as that's communicated to the public. As long as it is just said, here is a model, this is our prediction, um, we think it's going to, you know, New York is going to have 5,000 uh, admissions to ICU um, this week, and we think that that number is somewhere between four and six, with 5,000 being our, our best prediction of it. Uh, and if you make that available and you say how you came about that number and you report that uncertainty interval, then... Um, that is what I would call good model practice, even if you get the model wrong, um, because things can pan out in pandemics that nobody can foresee. I suppose what was particularly alarming about the IHME model initially was that they were producing forecasts um, with um, what's called uh, prediction intervals. Um, so they were produ producing, say, I expect that the ICU beds in um uh, New York, where actually they were predicting 140,000 at one point, whereas the maximum that was ever used was was 5,000. With um, uncertainty predictions, they might say, well, so it's going to be 140,000 and it's going to be between, say, 100,000 and 180,000, 95% of the time. Um, and you can actually then see how your prediction does. So you then make this prediction and then, you know, time rolls on and you get results and you see whether or not your observation was within your 95% prediction interval because uh, you're doing it for many, many different locations. And you should then be able to adjust and say, well, hang on a minute, what's right or wrong? And what we found at the time was that only 31% of their predictions were falling within a 95% prediction interval. That is that 70% or 70 odd percent of predictions were falling way, way outside the 95% prediction interval. So that's where you start to be a little alarmed um, that the model is wrong. Um, and and, and so you, you found that for quite a few models, if I remember correctly, that a number of these COVID-19 models had a large proportion of their uh, predictions falling completely outside of their own confidence bounds. Yes, perhaps none so spectacularly badly as I hate <laughs> Yes, they did. Um, and so I think that that's just, you know, there's a lot more uncertainty out there than, than, than the models were um, predicting. Uh, and, and actually, to tell you the truth, that's OK. But you need to then be honest about saying, you know, we got it wrong and learn from it. I think what I've had a, a bit of trouble is, is if modelers who get it wrong then turn around and say, which they have done, well, the reason we got it wrong was because we got it right and actions were taken so that um, that made our predictions not come true. Now, that may or may not be the case, but it's a really circular argument because if you're saying you're wrong because you were right and it's 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 not testable whether that's a particular, um, whether that was the explanation. So they said, oh, well, because they had these doomsday forecasts, you know, governments took strict precautions and locked down. And so the number of deaths um, was far, far less than it was expected because of their forecasts. Mm. 
Yeah. And so that's actually, you know, there could be some truth in that. But what you would really, if you if you really want to understand it, you should actually try and disprove yourself and say, well, actually, are there other explanations for this? And, and how do you go about testing that? Yeah. It seems like that sort of argument would work best for, you know, predictions that were made for months or, or you know, weeks or months in the future. But you found that they were outside of their confidence bounds, even only like a few days or a week. Yeah. One Which, day before, we we tried to do it, you know, we tried to, to give every model the best possible chance. So we looked at their one day ahead forecasts. So they were making, so if they were making a forecast, say today is Friday, we would look at the forecast made today and how it did tomorrow. You know, because of course you don't mm. go look months in ahead because it's just, you know, nobody really believes that we can forecast the cycle of a pandemic of the scale of COVID-19 months in advance. So yes, these were models that were failing only one day ahead. So there was no sensitivity to initial conditions, you know, no sort of chaotic behaviour that um, could have led to such wild forecasts when you're just forecasting one day ahead. And actually, interestingly, the IHME model got worse as more data came into it. So the longer it went, the worse its performance um, in predicting one day ahead uh, as more data arrived. So that that should be a real wake up call. You know, if your model is doing worse as you get more data, then then that's a worry. Yeah, that, that's that is quite worrying. Yes. I just want to pick up on something you said, because I think it's a point um, for a lot of the listeners that's not well understood is the uh, how um, vulnerable models are to their assumptions. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Sure. All models, um, I'm sure most, uh, sure you know it, Gideon, but there's a lovely sound by a, a very famous statistician, um, uh, George Box, you know, that all models are wrong and some are useful. So a model is a simplification of the world, and that's actually its beauty. It is because the world is so complex, uh, you know, it's impossible to model. So we make assumptions that simplify things. Many of those assumptions may not be um may not be so bad, and some of the other assumptions may be very um, poor. So, for example, the dependency of the um, fatality or the, 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 the death of people who contract COVID-19, you know, on the, on the age group. So a lot of the models were assuming that the population was homogeneous. Now, we know that that's not true. Homogeneous by, mean, uh, by which I mean homogeneously susceptible to... Uh, to to the pandemic. Um, so by that you mean that in across age groups everyone would have the same risk of death. Yeah. So basically that's a, that's the initial assumption. And you know at the start of a pandemic that's not a bad assumption because you simply have no idea. Um, mm. It's the it's a it's a question of how quickly they learn. Uh, some models learn quite quickly. You know I, I notice now that the latest one out in Nature by Imperial now does take into account you know the age profile of of people. But there are other assumptions as well that are embedded in there, which again are to do with generalising to populations at large. For example, that uh, the social distancing is equally um, met, or sorry, is is equally complied with in all across all of Australia or across all of the US, and that the impact of that social distancing is equally the same. So you know, it would sort of make more sense that. If people, um, you know, in highly densely, pop, you know, highly populated areas, um, the impact of obeying social distancing would be greater than those who live in the country where, you know, social distancing um, 
happens because there's nobody else around, if you know what I mean. So, mm. so the impact of social distancing was also assumed to be homogeneous, which we know not to be the case. And, and also the one thing that's really hard to model is, you know, these hotspots. So once it breaks out, for example, in a nursing home, it's not, you know, the person in the nursing home is not equally likely to get it to somebody who's not in the nursing home, even mm. if they have the same age profile. And so this this spatial dependence um, is something that obviously is is very relevant for COVID-19, for any infectious disease um, and the environment in which it happens. So, you know, uh, you, you know, going on a cruise. So it seems to be that being cooped up with a lot of people, not surprisingly, actually increases your chance of um, getting an infectious disease. Mm, absolutely. And I think. Uh, as an example of that homogeneity, the IHME model, um, in terms of they're, they're predicting, you know, this reduction in deaths due to masks, um, and they're predicting that based on the entire population uh, using masks at the 95th percentile of mask use in the world. Um, yes, so there we go. Uh, that's a classic example. Um and it would be interesting to have a look at what that uncertainty figure is. But there's there's another more important level of uncertainty, I think, that is brought into question, which is hard for people to grasp who don't work in this area, which is that 45,000 assumes their model is correct. And as you pointed out, their model may not be correct because of it assumes the, you know, everybody's going to wear masks. But there could be a much more fundamental point, which is the model is just fundamentally wrong. There are many, many models out there. The IHME model is just one. So mm. not just the parameter uncertainty within a model or the assumptions within a particular model, but actually the type of model and how it operates. So, you know, there is a lot of model uncertainty and that is ignored. So this 45,000 depends not only on everybody wearing masks, but but the actual model that the IMH, IHME team is using uh, to be the right model, um, mm. you know, and it, be, it probably is the wrong model. So, so model uncertainty is a really important component of uncertainty, but it's very difficult to convey and it's actually difficult to measure in fairness to them. That kind of leads on to, the, to my next question. I think we've kind of touched on it already but um obviously there have been some issues with the models themselves but what what issues do you think you've seen in the reporting of these models in the media well yes um actually interesting so recently i was asked by uh, i was invited um by the journal of international forecasting to be part of a team that we had to argue about that the models failed and we were on the affirmative or the models didn't fail and that was the opposition. Our team was led by a very, very famous epidemiologist called John Ioannidis and the other team was led by an equally famous mathematical statistician um, called Nassim Taleb. Uh, and in um, our write-up, one of, or in the oppositions, they they called into question um, John Ioannidis's ability to forecast by quoting that he forecast there, there would be less than 40,000 deaths in the US, which, of course, is not at all um, what has happened. And so in our response to um, the, uh, the the team that was on the opposition, 
John wrote about this. He he wrote about why he gave that um, figure. He said he, he admitted that it was wrong. And he said, um, I'm now quoting from our paper that um, is available on the web, and I understand it's got 13 million hits now, so it's of the Journal of International Forecasting. Wow. It says, yeah, I know, I've never had anything like that before. It's, you've got to take up with people in the US. <laughs> <laughs> That's almost the Australian population, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, so what he said was, I sadly behaved like an expert and endorsed this quote about 40,000 deaths. And he said then, journalists and the public want certainty, even when there is no certainty. And so that is what I think comes um, where the press or journalism needs to you know, step in and try to help convey this um, appearance of or, or help convey this idea of uncertainty. But many, most of the time they don't. That actually, you know, there is no headline that is as grabbing as, you know, 40,000 lives saved by wearing masks. And nobody's going to want a headline that says, we think it could be 45,000, but, you know, it could really be anywhere between 1,000 and 100,000. You know, that's sort of not useful information, but it should be useful information because it tells you just how uncertain, you know, we are about this. So I think that, you know, what sells is these claims and the public want certainty and journalists want to give them certainty. And I think that is what is the problem of forecasting uh, or reporting of, of COVID-19 models. You know, the the allure of certainty is comforting, but it's ultimately false because there is no certainty. We need to accept that and then figure out how to manage it. So I think that's what's a lot of the problem with reporting. There, there are other problems and they sort of would include that um, in the US at least, the, you know, um, the success or failures of models has sort of become a, a dividing line, you know, for a, for a political um, set of beliefs with the right wing wanting to claim that they failed and the left wing wanting, to, well, actually the left wing, nobody's claiming that they worked, both of them saying that they failed, but but then what do you do about it? You know, how do you go, how do you move forward? Um, and, and I think that that's really unhelpful because they're both sort of missing the point, which is that, of course, they failed. And what is needed is to recognise that they failed and learn. I mean, because that's how we learn. You know, you start out with this whole bunch of assumptions, you get some data, you see that your model's clearly out. And that actually tells you not something just about your model, but about the disease itself. So you, you then learn, okay, so why was it wrong? What assumptions did I use? And what actually do I now know? And how do I address those assumptions? How do I update my model? How do we learn as we go? And and part of learning as you go with modelling is failing, absolutely failing. And so, but if you fail, if 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 to be to have a failed model is to be pillared, then people tend to be very defensive about their models. So I think that the press could help a lot by rather than having sensationalist reports of you know, they all failed and um, I even had one reporter actually quote our, our article saying that um, uh, that we had we had said that they had failed and we had said this was despite best intentions and we gave some um, tips in the paper for how to move forward. Uh, but but the um, the article was picked up by the Australian and, and, you know, it said university professor blasts models and then the article went on to say and then and then it went on to say that, you know, 
of clearly climate change is not happening and blah. And I thought, wow, that's a long bow. You know, you 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 take a paper that says we really should learn about how to forecast pandemics and um and and offered constructive advice to um a statement that says climate you know climate change is not happening. Well, so just just moving on to the last question. Um, yeah. I just wanted to, for the listeners, to get your your single best piece of advice when you see something, a predictive model in the news. Okay. A single best piece of advice is if it doesn't report uncertainty estimates, pay no attention. <laughs> I think if I had to say one. <laughs> and, and for people who may not understand uncertainty estimates, maybe a little bit about what that means. Okay. Okay. Um, so if it says that we are going to see 45,000 lives saved, but it doesn't say um, report that or, you know, or at least we are we are 80% sure that it's going to fall between 40 and 50,000, which is in some way reporting uncertainty, uh, then I wouldn't trust it because you don't know whether that that 40,000 is a 40,000 or 45,000, whereas they're 80% certain that it's between 40 and 60, or 45,000 when they're 80% certain that it's between 500 and, you know, 200,000. So, and, and they're obviously very different forecasts. And uh, so, so if there isn't some attempt to figure out what would be a reasonable range, then I think that it's probably not a very useful model. Um and I think also just keep in mind that with the ease of data capture now and the increasing computational power, there are so many models that we can now estimate. And what you're seeing in the news is just one. Mm. And you should ask yourself, I wondered if that would be the case if another model, you know, um, were to try to quantify that same phenomenon. So always try to ask yourself, um, you know, did they do just one type of analysis or did they do several types of analyses? Because that's actually ultimately it. How do you, you know, if you want to look at whether something happened, you should try and disprove it, right? So, but if you can't, if it doesn't matter which model you used, um, you still come up with the same conclusion, then you're pretty confident of the conclusion. Uh, if the model, if the conclusion depends on a whole bunch of assumptions or a model that was used. And if you relax just one of those assumptions, um, it, it, the, the conclusions are entirely different. Then that's cause for concern and cause to get more information. I had an experience of that with the lockout laws in Sydney, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would love to talk lockout laws, but I think it might be of less interest uh, to right the listeners now. for this particular <laughs> episode. Maybe in the future, though. I think it's a fascinating topic as well. But it's the same thing, you know, it's like here is one model that says that this worked. So if you're having a look at, you know, does does wearing masks work? And here is one model that says, yes, it does. It's going to reduce deaths by 45,000. You should say to yourself, well, if I ran it through a different model, would I get a different number? So it's the same principle. Is that, yeah. you know, she's a different model. And, and if with every model that you run it through, you find that it, it gets – you know, it may not be always 45,000, but it's a substantial reduction in deaths. And that's that's interesting. And then you get more confident. But if it's just one model with one number, I wouldn't pay any attention to it, really. So I think yeah. that brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been fascinating. Thank you.
and thank you very much for having me on. And there you have it. Coronavirus modelling more complex than you first thought. Predicting the future, it turns out, isn't easy, no matter what the headlines say. And while some models may be useful, a truly astonishing proportion of them are wrong. And some of them are really not that helpful at all. This has been your dose of sensationalist science and media madness. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can follow me on Twitter or Medium at GitMK or Facebook at GitMK Health Nerd. Sally is on Twitter at Prof Sally Cripps, and you can find the podcast on SoundCloud at SensiPod or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the podcast on Twitter at SensiPod, and if you have any suggestions about new guests or topics that you'd like to see covered, please send me an email on sensipod at gmail.com. That's S-E-N-S-C-I-P-O-D at gmail.com. Have a great week, and remember, if it sounds unlikely, it's good to be skeptical. Skeptical.